thank you, thank you. Last Sunday, or actually two weeks ago, I arrived here on a Sunday morning at my usual time, about 8 o'clock, and I discovered our Wi-Fi was not working properly. Uh, a lot of our Sunday morning systems and processes are dependent upon a reliable Wi-Fi, uh, and suddenly we found ourselves without one. And it wasn't that it just wasn't working, period. It was that it was kind of working in some ways, but not working in others, which always kind of presents a unique challenge. And we have a lot of amazing volunteers here at Hope on our tech team, but unfortunately, none with experience specifically dealing with Wi-Fi system failures, at least none yet. Perhaps there's a skilled, experienced IT person out there wanting to volunteer their time and talent at Hope. That would be awesome. Uh, but in the absence of an, IT, uh, an, an experienced IT volunteer to troubleshoot our Wi-Fi issue, it fell upon me to try to figure it out because it was a kind of mission-critical thing, and, uh, and I actually do have a little bit of experience uh, with IT and a smidgen of aptitude, which means I kind of enjoy uh, solving technical issues. But my tiny bit of IT experience has left me with the knowledge of a minuscule little button found on most Wi-Fi routers and other similar te technical devices. A little button called a reset button. It, it's not a conspicuous button, and in fact, most people don't even know it's there, and you often have to look pretty hard to find it. It's not a button that, that actually sticks out. In fact, it's usually recessed beneath the case so that you don't trigger it automatically. Usually you need to get something like a paperclip and straighten it out, poke it in a little tiny hole, and then hold it like for 10 seconds. Again, this is so that you don't trigger it accidentally, because if you trigger it accidentally, you can actually wind up creating a whole new world of problems and issues. Remember that throughout this whole series. Hitting the reset button accidentally or unnecessarily creates a whole batch of other problems and issues, potentially far worse than the issues that prompted you to press the button in the first place. Because what triggering the reset button does is it takes everything back to its original state, its, its factory settings. It erases any settings and features you've enabled or customized, initializes its memory you know, so that devices that were connected to it and, and given their own permissions and settings are wiped from memory, all the passwords, usernames, all that kind of stuff that may have taken you hours or days or even weeks to input suddenly are now completely gone. Now, sometimes you want to do that. Because in the day-to-day -day use, you know, a new device might be added or new settings created to conflict with older devices and settings or any number of other things that can lead to a device misfiring, creating malfunctions, which trigger other malfunctions, and all of a sudden you have a huge mess. Are you finding this fascinating? This is really amazing technical stuff here, isn't it? And that reset button can be really handy because it basically saves you the trouble of having to sift through and identify what the actual problem, problems are, which could be extremely time-consuming and instead just allows you to press a button for a few seconds and then start over from the beginning. So reset buttons can be really good things when used in the right conditions. And if you're like me, you often find yourself wishing that life came with a reset button, don't you? Wouldn't that be great? 
You make a mistake that winds up creating some problems that turn into headaches that grow to become unmanageable disasters. And you kind of trace it back to those two boneheaded decisions that you made back there. But now so much other chaos has been created that you wish you could just press a button that lets you go back to the beginning. That had to have been what Adam and Eve were thinking after their boneheaded decision and resulting chaos, don't you think? They're, they're, they're going, you know, where's the reset button? Can we just go back to the beginning? Can we just start over, fresh start? Well, this morning as we start this new series called The Greatest Reset, this morning I have some good news and I have some bad news. First, the bad news, which we all pretty much know already. We all wish that life was as simple as pressing a reset button, that we could just hit a button and start over from the beginning, erasing all the consequences and the, uh, all the consequences from our mistakes. But it isn't that simple, is it? Our choices, our decisions, our behaviors, they have consequences. And for the vast majority of those consequences, there is no reset button. And a lot of us go, but why not? Why couldn't God have created each of us with our own reset button? Wouldn't that have been the loving, compassionate thing to do? Or some means of just erasing everything and starting over? But it seems not to be the case. I mean, yes, we can have a fresh start. We can be forgiven, for example, and enjoy a new beginning and a fresh start uh, that, that many of us actually have been given, a second chance. And yet, most of the time, there is irreversible damage that has been done. The consequences of those poor choices that you made earlier are not erased, at least not completely. And in some cases, the smoke continues to rise from the chaos and destruction caused by those foolish choices years that you made years and years earlier. It continues to rise for some time into your future. And in fact, you may still be suffering the consequences of someone else's poor choices. And while they are in, maybe enjoying a fresh start, you might still be stuck in the, the carnage of their poor choices. And you may be wishing that there was a reset button so that you could go, you could go back and, you know, avoid, even avoid any dealings with that person. But there seems to be no such reset button. Not for you, not for them, not for anybody. Of course, that doesn't stop us from wanting one, and it doesn't stop us even pre from pretending that there is one, to the point where we often find ourselves living as if there are no consequences to our choices and behavior. Wouldn't it be great if we made a mistake, foolish decision, behave recklessly and irresponsibly, and, and once those consequences of our mistakes begin to manifest, we just hit a button, and all those consequences are erased. That would be great. This seems to be our greatest misplaced longing as human beings. We want to be able to ignore wisdom and even common sense, ignore the rules of life itself, defy God's guidance and warnings, his purposes and design, and then just somehow magically mitigate or, or erase the resulting consequences of our foolish, foolishness and rebellion, right? We want to enjoy the forbidden fruit and somehow escape the inevitable results. And we ask, but, you know, but why does there have to even be inevitable results? Why do there have to be consequences? Why, why did God create a world where unpleasant consequences are a fact of life? 
I had a conversation with Lois, our worship leader, about this just, just uh, last week after this service. You know, we were talking about, you know, really, why couldn't God have created a world where there are no consequences for anything, where the option to choose something or do something or even think something that might result in negative consequences just did not exist? And the question we're really asking there is, why did God have to put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden? When you think about it, that's really the question we're asking. I mean, it was paradise. It was beautiful, and it was good. Everything there was good. Nothing was bad, and everything was permitted. Nothing forbidden except for that one thing. So it was, in fact, this world we just talked about, this existence we, we all think we long for. There were, there, there were no consequences for anything except for that one thing. So why did God have to include that one thing? But what was that one thing? Let's think about this. What was that one thing? It was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it was God's one and only rule. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything else was permissible. There were no consequences to anything except that one thing. Think about that. When God had everything just the way he wanted it, there was only one rule. Now, did Adam and Eve have a knowledge of good? Well, heck yeah. I mean, they were living in the midst of pure goodness. It was all good. Everything surrounding them was good. They had a knowledge of good. Did they have a knowledge of evil? No. For them, it was like, you know, evil. What, what's, what's evil? Evil, is that like some kind of shrub or maybe an animal we haven't named yet? Are you thinking of weevil? Because we just named that day before yesterday. No, not weevil, evil, huh? No, we don't any, know anything about evil. See, they didn't know about evil because evil did not exist yet. So how would you explain evil to someone who only knows good? It's like, you know, it's like, listen, Adam and Eve, um, evil is like, um, it's like bad. Bad, what's bad? Well, bad is, bad, bad is not good. Bad is ungood, ungood. It's the absence of good. But everything here is good. Well, well not everything. Uh, really, show us something that's not good. Death is not good. Death, what's death? What is death? Death is when you're, you're not alive anymore. Death is... It's unlife. It's, it's non-life. It's the absence of life. Absence of life? Not possible. But yeah, it is. You see, they, they existed in the presence of God who is the very essence of life and love and goodness, and God is perfect being. He is perfect being. So they could not imagine or conceive of non-being or non-life or non-goodness, which is what evil actually is. It is the antithesis of good, of life, and of being itself. So then why couldn't God have just kept everything just like that? Okay, well, that is a question that's been asked by countless people down through history and continues to be asked and wrestled with today. But the important thing to keep in mind here that is that according to the narrative in Genesis, God was all in favor of keeping everything in that state. 
and of our remaining completely ignorant and innocent of evil. That's why he gave us the very dire warning. You must not eat from the tree of the garden of good and evil. You must not eat from the knowledge of good and not good. You must not eat from the knowledge of uh, or the realization of the possibility of there being something other than good, something other than life. For in the day that you eat from it, you will certainly die. And being the very essence of love, God was not willing to hold us like puppets on a string who had no other option than to do what he said. No, being the very essence of love, he cut the strings and gave us the tremendous gift of free will. See, this is a concept, really, we're all very familiar with, something that even children can grasp, as is attested to by the acclaimed best-selling literary classic, Pinocchio. You've all heard of Pinocchio, right? An Italian toy maker named Geppetto creates a puppet with the potential of becoming a real boy, but in order for him to become a real boy, Geppetto has to cut the strings, so to speak, and give his puppet creation freedom. And you know the story. Pinocchio uses his freedom unwisely and suffers the inevitable, inevitable tragic consequences. Now, we, we can try to blame God for cutting the strings. But the decision to wander away from him was entirely our own. And we certainly didn't have to make the choice to do the very thing he warned us not to do. We are the ones who exercise our will contrary to God's will and in doing so created this phenomenon called evil with its very predictable and very natural consequences. Because as we've talked about many times, evil is simply the absence of good, just like darkness is the absence of light. The more distance you put between yourself and the light, the, the darker things are going to, to get naturally. In the same way, the more distance you put betwe between yourself and God, who is the very essence of goodness, the more evil things are going to get. We brought evil into, this, into, into existence. We created evil, and evil carries with it consequences. When you distance yourself from love, you naturally end up with hostility. When you distance yourself from him who is perfect peace, you naturally end up with fear and conflict and chaos. We are free to choose but we are not free from the consequences of our choices and decisions as much as we wish we could be. There is no reset button that will do this for us. All of our efforts to mitigate or erase the consequences of our choices only has the effect of multiplying our consequences because we are looking for a remedy to our consequences apart from him who is our only remedy. And this is why God's greatest gift to us always come with dire warnings attached to them, beginning with the gift of free will, our ability to choose. See, our greatest blessings, our greatest blessings from God also carry with them the greatest consequences, glorious consequences when they are pursued in the context of God's will and design, or tragic consequences when they are pursued outside of God's will and design. Just for example, just for example, Without question, 
One of the greatest gifts God has given to human beings. I actually talked this, about this quite a bit last week, even though it was in a completely different series. It, one of God's greatest gifts to mankind is love and marriage and family. It is a primary reason, uh, means through which God prepares us for eternity, for heaven, most of us. You know, some of us, our gift is being single, but for most of us, this is how God shapes us, transforms us, and perfects us. And God has given us some very clear and specific guidelines on the subject of love and marriage and family. And one of the primary guidelines is this. This is a lifelong covenant. It's, it's a lifelong covenant, which means a great deal of wisdom and discernment, preparation, and prayer should be exercised in entering into this covenant. But let's just say, let's just imagine that you were very young and very immature and foolish when you got married. You were too young, you were way too broke, and maybe feeling way too desperate. So you got married, and then you wind up having a child way too young, so that now you're even way more broke and way more desperate. And you didn't realize it a year ago when you were so in love and so impatient and so, so under the control of your, and the control and influence of your hormones, but it begins to dawn on you a couple years down the road. I was, I was very immature and foolish when I got married. And I married someone who was also very immature and foolish. But now you have a child, maybe two, that you weren't really prepared to have and weren't really expecting and truth be known, weren't even wanting. And so you're looking for the reset button. And oh, how you wish you could just hit the reset button that takes you back before you even started dating that person. You wish you could do, you would do so many things differently but there is no reset button. It, in fact, in this juncture, there is only a self-destruct button or one other button that we'll talk about in, in just a minute. But the self-destruct button, unfortunately, is, is often the choice that people make. It's not labeled self-destruct, but that is the effect it has on you and your spouse and, your, and especially on your children. We talked about the consequences of divorce on children last week, which are very, very tragic. See, we are free to choose, but we are not free from the consequences of our choices, no matter how badly we wish there were. They, they, we wish were, were there. Um, you may have gotten married too young, had children too young. Those are just a couple of examples. Other, other common examples are you may have experimented with drugs and wound up with an addiction. You, or developed a spending habit that put you in debt way over your head, or wound up in some kind of legal trouble through poor decisions, or wound up with serious health problems because of some poor choices and decisions. See, nobody ever makes a choice to become an addict or to become bankrupt or to, or, or, or to you know, nobody gets married, you know, planning on getting divorced or get into the legal trouble or wind up in the hospital. It all starts with a disregard for God's wisdom and guidance a disregard for his commands and instructions, and a distancing ourselves from him who is goodness, purity, and love. Now, please stay with me here. The consequences of such choices may be irreversible, but they are not irredeemable. I told you up front I had some bad news and I have some good news. The bad news is that our actions, choices, and decisions have consequences usually far greater than we anticipated. It's unavoidable. But the good news is this. God knows how to take even our worst 
most foolish and destructive choices and redeem them for our good and for the good of those around us, for the good of all humanity, for all eternity, when we turn to him. This is what God does. This is who he is. He can take the broken, shattered pieces of our past, our lives, and remake them into something new and beautiful and glorious. He makes beautiful things out of the dust. Remember that song? I love that song. He makes beautiful things out of the dust. And we all have broken pieces and, and dust in our in our past, in our lives. We have smoldering debris in our past. I certainly do, and I know you do too. And while there may not be a reset button per se, God has provided a redemption mechanism that is far better than a reset button, and of course, infinitely better than a self-destruct button that will not only bring healing and restoration, but create something even more beautiful and more glorious than what was before. You see this pattern all through scriptures. Uh, warnings and promises. Warnings and promises. You see it a lot in the Old Testament prophets, you know, where they were warning the people of Israel and even people of other nations that unless they turn from their evil and idolatry, there will be consequences. Prophets whose, whose messages Jesus and the other New Testament writers frequently affirmed and quoted dire warnings, but then the promise of redemption even after the warnings were not heeded and the consequences unfolded, the prophets pointed them to a promise of redemption. The Old Testament prophets, those guys were quite a crew. They, they had the unpleasant and extremely unpopular job of publicly calling out the corruption, immorality, injustice, and evil in their culture. Not, not only just in the nation of Israel, but you know, God's chosen people, but among the surrounding nations as well. They warned of serious consequences if people didn't repent of their evil and injustice and immorality and their corruption, and they especially called out those who were in positions of power and authority. And their messages, including the predictions of doom and destruction, while historically proving to be extremely accurate, were widely not received. They had few supporters, they were mocked, ridiculed, beaten, imprisoned, and often even killed. Jesus, in his most famous sermon, makes reference to this in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount in a section called the Beatitudes, which we're actually going to look at much more in-depth in the weeks to come. But, but this is what he says in the Beatitudes. He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus does something with this Beatitude that he doesn't do with any of the be other Beatitudes. He reiterates it. He restates it. He says it again. Blessed are you when people insult you, when they persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your re reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thus Jesus affirms not only those who speak unpopular words of truth and redemption today, 
but also the prophets who have inherited the reputation of being doomsday preachers, you know, who, who are out of touch with reality and with modern thinking, you know, who are harsh and judgmental and without com compassion or mercy. You know, all of that is a gross mischaracterization of the prophets. They begged and pleaded with their fellow countrymen to turn away from the evil they were so foolishly embraces, embracing so that they could be spared the, the untold suffering. And, and even when they were mocked and ridiculed for their message, they added the promise that should they not heed the warning and wind up suffering the consequences of their evil and immorality, after their lives and families and nations were destroyed, there would remain a path to redemption, the hope of restoration, something they could cling to and find hope in after they had been conquered by their enemies and, and carted off as slaves into, a, into foreign captivity. For example, Joel was a prophet to the nation of Judah just before the Babylonian inva uh, Babylonians invaded their nation. Other prophets had been warning for decades for, for the nation of Judah to turn from their corruption, turn from their immorality, their injustice and evil, and if they didn't repent, their nation would be destroyed. Joel is actually the prophet that brings these warnings right before the Babylonians invade right before the calamity falls on their nation. And like many of the other prophets, Joel used locusts as a metaphor for the coming judgment. And it was an appropriate metaphor because everybody in those days was painfully aware of the just devastation that locusts can cause. How a tiny, little seemingly, seemingly harmless insect can actually quickly grow to become an overwhelming wave of destruction that leaves carnage and chaos everywhere completely stripping you of everything you valued while you watched helplessly. Completely outside of your control. There's nothing you can do about it. So Job describes that destruction, calling people to repentance, but also including a prophetic promise, a promise that the coming consequences do not have to be the end of the story. He says this, speaking as the voice of God as the prophets often did. This is what he says. I will restore to you. Now, this, remember, this is, this is contained in a prophecy of doom. Repent because terrible things are about to happen to you if you don't repent. But even if you don't repent, he says this. I will restore to you the years the locusts have eaten. In other words, yeah, calamity's coming. Keep this in the back of your head. I will restore to you the years the locusts have eaten, the great locusts and the young locusts, the other locusts and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full and you will, you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be ashamed. Then you will know that I am among you, that I am the Lord your God and there is no other. Never again will my people be ashamed. Now, okay, what's my point? All these references to Old Testament prophets, what, what am I getting at here? Here's what I'm getting at. The consequences of your poor choices, your ignorance, your negligence of God's commands and instruction, even perhaps your outright evil behavior, the consequences do not have to spell your final fate. God says, I can restore to you the years the locusts have eaten, I can make the end of your story more glorious 
than it would have been otherwise. Let me say it again. I can make the end of your story far more glorious than it would have been otherwise. This is, this is why I, Jim, I, Jim, am calling this series The Greatest Reset. A reset that doesn't just erase everything and take you back to a starting point, but actually incorporates everything, repurposes everything, and transforms all the broken pieces, leaving you in a much better place, in a much better condition, having gone through the breaking, through the failure, having borne the consequences. God says, you got to trust me. you got to trust me. you got to turn to me. you got to start believing in me to the point where you follow me and follow my instructions. Even when the whole world is going a different direction, even when everybody else is telling you you're crazy, even when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, all the prophets spoke of a coming Savior, a Redeemer. Isaiah, Isaiah said that he would be called Emmanuel, which literally translated means God with us. God, God with us. In other words, God is not a God who stays out there somewhere and sends judgment upon us from afar. But he is a God who himself entered into our world in human form and subjected himself to the very judgment, the very consequences we brought upon ourselves. He came into our broken world to gather up the broken pieces of our world, our lives, in order to create something beautiful and glorious out of those broken pieces. And, and check this out. This is kind of interesting. Many of the Old Testament prophets, as I said, used locusts, like the prophet Joel did, as a metaphor for judgment that we brought upon ourselves. They used that metaphor, locusts. But there's one last prophet before the coming of Emmanuel. One last prophet who warned people, saying, saying this, the axe is already at the foot of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Uh, one last prophet and he called people to repent, to turn from their evil ways. He was the last prophet immediately preceding the coming of Jesus the Messiah. Who was that prophet? Who was he? John the Baptist. Anybody remember what John the Baptist ate for food? Locusts. Locusts. The widely used metaphor for the judgment and destruction, the consequences of our rejection of God. And here is the forerunner of Jesus chewing on, feeding on locusts, heralding the one who would himself devour the devourer, swallow the curse, and triumph over judgment through his mercy. Interesting thing about the story of Pinocchio. In the original story written in 1883, Pinocchio actually ends up being executed. Not, not the Disney version. <laughs> In the original version, his enemies, the fox and the cat, bind his arms, pass a noose around his throat, and hang him from a branch, the, uh, a, hang him from a branch of an oak tree. Failed experiment. He does not become a boy. Tragic ending to a fair, fairy tale. But like all fairy tales, it reveals something we all universally seem to understand and resonate about the human condition. The historical Jesus 
the real life Jesus took the judgment and destruction we've brought upon ourselves, the curse, the consequences, and he takes it upon himself, putting it to death in his own execution on a tree, effectively initiating, effectively initiating the greatest reset of all time, where even the broken pieces of our, of our lives, the broken pieces caused by our sin and rebellion are transformed into something rare and beautiful. Worship team, why don't you guys come back up? The, the Japanese have a unique art form called kintsugi. It, it literally means golden joinery. Kintsugi is the, the Japanese art of repairing broken pottery by mending the areas of breakage with, with lacquer dusted or mixed with powdered gold. The idea behind it is that it treats breakage and repair as part of the history of an object rather than something to cover up, to discard, or worse yet, to, do, to dispose of. They actually take something that's broken that most people would dispose of. They say, no, no, I can actually, I can repair this and I can repair it so that it's more beautiful than before it was broken. As you can see in this picture, the pieces of pottery is, is this, this particular piece of pottery, as, as beautiful as it might have been before it was broken, has, has been made more beautiful and much more valuable in the hands of a kintsugi artist. And if a human artist is capable of such beautiful artistry, imagine what our loving creator God can do with the broken pieces of your life but you have to put those pieces in the hands of your loving Heavenly Father. You have to give it to Him entirely. Whatever you hang on to will be less left out of this amazing transformation. Will you give God, your Creator, your Heavenly Father, will you give Him and trust Him with the broken pieces of your past, and more importantly, your future choices and decisions. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that in you, nothing is wasted. There is no choice, however horrible, no decision, however misguided, however evil, that when put in your hands, you cannot turn into something glorious and beautiful. What amazing grace you truly give us. So Father, I pray for those here this morning that maybe are in a place where they are looking back in their life and realizing that they have made, they've wandered from you, they, they've, they've made the bad choice. They've, they've been drawn to their forbidden fruit. And maybe right now they're beginning to experience some of the consequences. Maybe they are on the other side of those consequences and, and are looking back at the, the debris of those foolish choices and decisions. Maybe they're in the right in the middle of it. And it's already begun to fall apart and unravel. God, I pray that 
no matter what place we are in our lives right now, that we would offer it all up to you, the master artist, the one who can make beautiful things out of the dust, that we would put our trust in you, and that people would say, make that prayer in their own heart this morning. I'm giving it all to you, my loving Heavenly Father. Let today begin a journey where I understand what it means every single day to make this commitment that I'm giving it all to you, I'm putting it all in your hands, and I'm trusting in you. Thank you, Jesus, for your amazing grace. In your name.